0: All right. Well, good morning, MBC. Welcome back to uh, week four of our series, Choose Joy. Uh, We're examining Paul's wonderful letter to the Philippian church. And as we've been going through this series, we've been asking the question, how can I find joy in the storms of life? Now, one thing I want to let you know about before I I start today, you know, a few weeks ago, we started to announce that we're doing uh, a rebrand on our weekly pastor Podcast. We're calling it Behind the Pulpit. And so I want to remind you that if you do have questions throughout the sermon or you just have questions about theology or about life, um, you can write those in and we'll do our best to answer those on the podcast. Now, I came up with this idea and I I told Dave about this at the beginning of April and he said, you know what, how about you start it because I'm going to be gone for four months and then uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, But anyway, I'll have some guests on there to help me out. I want to let you know that we do have uh, the QR codes that you can scan if you're in the, the seats there. There's these uh, postcards in the seat back pockets in front of you, so you can take out your phone, you can scan it, you can send in your questions. There's also some uh, uh, tabletops and Wayfinder signs out in the uh, in the foyer if you want to do it that way. But uh, we got a couple good questions last week, and so we'd love more uh, this week and the weeks to continue as kind of the backbone of what we're doing uh, there. Now, that occurs live every Monday at 12.30 on our YouTube channel. That's NBC Un. Hindered, NBC Unhindered, or if you're subscribed to the newsletter, the video will come out uh, later in the week, and you can, uh, you can watch it that way. Now, speaking of storms, one of the current storms that easily steals our joy is that of division and disunity. It's really hard to have joy when you're experiencing tension with somebody in your family or at work or at school or church. And I suspect most of us, that's something we can relate to. And so today in our series, we've come to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, specifically verses 1 to 11, where Paul's going to teach us what it means to have unity in the gospel. And the key is humility. It's humility. Now, uh, humility, or I guess the idea of being humble, is, is a bit of a mixed bag in our culture because too many people today use the guise of humility to brag about their accomplishments. And there's a cultural word for that. And that word is the humble brag. (laughs) Have you ever done the humble brag? Now, let me offer you a simple definition. It's here on the screen. It's a boast hidden in a statement of humility. It's a boast hidden in a statement of humility. For example, there's there's an example there. Uh, My garage is so small I can't fit my Ferrari in it. And you say, what are you saying, right? Small house expensive car? It must be really difficult to afford a car like that and have no place to put it. That's the humble brag. Now, let me give you another example. Uh, Recently, the president of the European Central Bank tweeted this statement. I was humbled to be awarded an honorary degree by the London School of Economics earlier this week. Thank you so much for this prestigious honor, which caused columnist David Brooks to mock him as having fake humility. He says, we used to dance around this humble bragging, but now, David Brooks says, our so-called humility is explicit. It's assertive. It's direct. It's unafraid. We blaze forth so much humility, it's practically blinding. And then he concludes and says, humility is the new pride. Humility is the new pride. Is that, is that kind of like orange is the new black and 40 is the new 30? I don't know. Now, ironically, the title of Brooks' article was this, truly humbled to be the author of this article. That's the humble brag. Now, let me ask you again, have you ever been guilty of this? How many of you out there have mastered the art of the humble brag? And I know if you have, you're not going to be shy about raising your hand because you're just honored to be recognized. <laughs> now, let me just state up front that if you, if you come up to me and tell me how humble you are, you've probably missed the point. <laughs> Practically speaking, humble bragging has really nothing to do with being humble. Let me show you an image that illustrates this. Here's a graphic. Uh, When you humble brag, you are either typically complaining about something or you are boasting about something or some combination of both. Notice real humility is kind of off to the side. People will publicly complain about something being so difficult, like my garage is too small for my expensive car. Or they, they will boast about their accomplishments and call it humility, like receiving a prestigious honor. Why do we do this? Well, I think David Brooks gets it right. He says, this is a cultural phenomenon. We live in a culture of self-obsession. 21st century American people like to complain and we like to boast. Think about the current engines of culture, things like social media. Uh, while it can be used for a force, as a force for good, often people use it and we can use use for force for good and it can spread the gospel message and connect people and all that but a lot of times it's used for selfish gain so when we post on social media we crave the likes the loves the comments we got to get the algorithm right so more people will find us so we snap a photo to make sure people know i'm eating a healthy lunch and then we post it on social media i'm so tired of seeing lunches out there and i don't care what you eat right I'm buying stylish shoes so you know I'm keeping up and I'm looking good. And even I'm posting about how I'm keeping up with my Bible reading plans so you can know how holy I am. Social media fuels as a platform for the humble brag. And this is because we live in a culture not just obsessed with self but with obsessed with fame. Because with one device and one online account, we can become Famous. But here's the lie of the humble brag. We start to think that we're more important than we actually are. We are a people who like to complain, and we're a people who likes to boast. We can become so obsessed with ourselves that we even need to tell people how humble we are. Now, here's what I want you to notice. When we build our lives, our identities, on the foundation of self, there's often no room for Jesus because it's all about us. When we're obsessed with self, there's nothing to unify us with other people. And that's the problem. The humble brag, the complaining, the boasting, they are the enemy of unity within the church. So if you look around at the culture, can we all agree that unity is dying in our world? Or it's dead already. The culture of self-obsession has taken a toll and that disunity now has spilled over into the church. Now, here's the thing. We desire unity. We long for unity. And the question we're asking is, how do we get it? How do we get it back? In the midst of a culture like ours, in the midst of a culture like the first century, which was very similar, Paul writes these words to the Philippians. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of others he says humility true humility is what we need and as we're going to see today from the time of the philippian church there's not just conflict outside the walls of the church but within why because conflict arises when we don't get what we want right i don't like the music Uh, there's not enough programs for me. Uh, The pastor preaches too long or too short, and let's be honest, it's always the former. I'll do my best today. (laughs) Philippians 2, Paul tells us, disunity often flows from a heart obsessed with the self. That's the lie of the humble bragging. So today, what I want to do is talk about the death of unity in our world and how to resurrect it. Because in Philippians 2, 1 to 11, Paul is going to show us our problem, and he's also going to show us the solution. And he accomplishes this in three movements. First, we're going to see an expression of unity. What does it look like? Second, we're going to hear a song of unity, and does it capture our hearts? And then third, we're going to see the mission of unity. What's our common cause? So we'll look at each of those in turn, but before we do that, uh, let's pray as we begin. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you today, we thank you for your word, we thank you for the timeless truths, we thank you for the conviction of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins and to offer us eternal life. And so I pray today, Lord, for each of my friends that are here that you would convict us Lord, that that whatever words I say that they would fade in spirit, that you would come, that you would illumine our hearts to the words of God God himself. Meet us where we are today, Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so last week, Pastor Dave introduced this concept of unity, and chapter 2 of Philippians just starts to flesh it out. The first four verses show us how the challenges, the goals, and the attitudes required for unity should be expressed. And so he begins this way in verse 1. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, pause, notice that word, therefore. Now, if, if you're a student of the Bible, you know when you see that word, therefore, you should always ask, what's it there for, right? I heard somebody say that. Excellent. We got some scholars here today. Now, it's almost always a transitional statement. Paul just finishing, finished making the case that we should live lives worthy of the gospel. You may remember that Dave highlighted that word "polytuma," which is a Greek word uh, that meant the totality of life the manner of the totality of life. Therefore, if you want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel in everything that you do, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says we should first desire the blessings of unity. We have to desire the blessings of unity. And just consider when unity is absent in your life. How How does that make you feel viscerally? When there's tension in your family or in a friendship or in the church, if it's there, you just say, I just want to run away because it hurts. I don't want any part of that. And as image bearers of God, what we do is we crave unity and connection because we're made in the image of a relational God. We want blessings. What are the blessings? Well, he lists four. Look at the verse again. He says, uh, first, uh, the blessing is encouragement. I guarantee you that a unified church is an encouraging church. It's a warm church. But to encourage others requires that we think of others, not just ourselves. Second, he talks about comfort, and specifically comfort that is a tangible expression of God's love for his people. Then he talks about common sharing of the spirit, and and that, the Greek word is a well-known word, it's the word koinonia, which refers to deep fellowship, deep connection where you're known, where you're loved, where you're cared for. That's the blessing of unity. And then finally, he talks about tenderness and compassion. These are words that display the heart of a people the heart of a church radically transformed and dependent upon the grace of God for the work of God. Amen? That is the blessing, the blessing. These are the blessings that flow from a unified church. But you say, but you say, hold on a second, that has not been my experience, right? You know, we talk a good game about that, but how do we actually achieve unity? It seems so elusive well, Paul's now going to talk about two pillars required for unity. The first one is this. He says you need to define a common conviction. You have to define a common conviction. And, and, and I will say many people, many, many churches, they skip this step or they do it half-heartedly. And they run to step number two, which we're going we're gonna to come to in a second. But a common conviction, a common confession, an agreed-upon set of non-negotiable theological convictions is crucial. It is needed for true unity. Look at verse 2. He says, given all those blessings, then make my joy complete by being what? By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one spirit and one mind. Now, now look at that word joy again, right? That, that is a theme that Paul introduced in chapter 1. It, it's a centerpiece of the letter. You may remember in chapter 1, verse 25, Paul's heart was this. He says, I want you to make my joy. Um, knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so that I can continue to help all of you grow and experience what? The joy of your faith. So he wants the Philippians and us, followers of Christ today, to know true joy in the faith. Now, how do we get joy? Well, chapter 2, verse 2, he specifically says that his joy is going to be complete if we do what? If the church stands together in unity, when we're of one mind, when we value and love the same things. Now, the phrase like-minded, back in verse 2, you can say that's a key concept. It means that that we are a group of people who have the same outlook on life. We're we're moving in the same direction. We have the same purpose. And the Greek word that I put on there for you is the the word phroneo. And that word appears 10 times in Philippians, more than any of Paul's other letters, which should tell you that Paul is hammering home. He He is emphasizing this concept in the letter. So he essentially says, if you want unity, you must have the same mindset. You must have the same core convictions. You have to have the same view of the world. If you don't, you really can't have true unity. Now, now let, me, let me pause here and, just, and tease this out for a minute because here's, here's my concern as a, as a pastor. In, in today's world, um, that word unity is mentioned a lot We just hear unity, unity. We need unity. Politicians hearken to it. Companies will invoke it. Songs will be sung about it. Preachers talk about it like today. But rarely do we actually define it. What is unity? And so my concern is that what we do is we we, we get this false sense and we create an an untenable view of what unity actually is and what it will do. Why? Why? What we have to do is we have to be clear about the principles, the message, or the philosophy and theology that unites us. And what often we don't do that. Because I believe all of us desire the blessings of unity that he outlined in verse 1. That's, just, that's what it means to be human. We desire that. We want encouragement. We want comfort. We want fellowship. We want compassion. Those are great things. But if we have a completely different view of life, a completely different view of the gospel, a completely different view of the authority of Scripture, true unity is really not possible. Are there things we can disagree upon? Sure. Yeah, there's a lot of secondary issues. Unity does not mean unanimity in all things. But there are convictions that we must agree upon. Yes. This is why NBC has articles of faith that members must adhere to. More theological agreement, I would say, means more unity. Now, what are some examples? Let me just give you two. First, the deity of Christ and the necessity and efficacy of the atonement. So, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, that we're sinners, and that Jesus needed to die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins and that we can't save ourselves, you're outside orthodoxy. Second, the authority of the Bible. And listen, there's good people on different sides of theological debates, but, but if you are somebody who's wrestling with what Scripture teaches, if you, if you think it has authority and can speak into your life, well, then we can talk, even if there's some practical challenges. And this conviction in particular is under assault today, even within sectors of the church. And so again, one of my greatest concerns is that people today don't know what the Bible says. They haven't studied it, and, and then they invoke the Bible in, in arguments without a context verses. I think if more people studied and then were willing to submit themselves to the Word of God, then we'd have more unity. And that's one of the reasons NBC has hosted groups like Bible Study Fellowship for more than 20 years right here on Monday night. I know a number of you attend. If you don't have a place to study the Bible with others, I'd encourage you to get involved. Get involved somewhere because there is a famine in the land for the Word of God. And if you don't have a high view of the Bible, it's going to change your view of the world. So what Paul says in this verse is that you have to have phreneo. You have to have the same mindset, the same outlook on life, the same core convictions or unity won't happen. Now, second, he says you need to develop a common affection. Develop a common affection. And if you you go back to verse 2, you'll see that phrase, the same love. Paul is now showing us that it's, it's necessary to care for and have a ve- affection for others within the body of Christ. And the, and the phrase, one mind, is the Greek word simpsychoi, which refers to souls in harmony with one another. The English expression soulmates captures it well, but not in like the romantic pop culture sense. So don't, don't, don't think that. Uh, commentator Dennis Johnson sums it up really good. He says this, It's not enough to agree with each other theologically, God actually calls you to care for each other deeply in a love that binds your souls together so strongly that differences of perspective cannot pull you apart. So I want you to sit with that for a second because that is supremely important. Because have you ever wondered why so many Christians can agree upon all the details, all the key things about doctrine And yet, they still can't get along. It's because we skipped the second step. So don't simply define a common conviction, although you do need to do that. But you also have to work at developing a common affection for one another. Now, if you walk in the lobby here at NBC or you visit our website, you'll notice that we have a vision statement, and it goes like this. We want to be followers of Christ who are firmly planted, growing together, made to multiply. So if you're firmly planted, that means that we're working on developing this common conviction based on the Word of God. But that's not enough for the church to flourish. You must grow together and develop a common affection for one another, and if you're here with us and you've been going to our church or you're just coming here and getting involved, I would just encourage you to join a small group study or a Sunday morning class. Serve somewhere in the body using your gifts. Join a shared interest group. All these things are on the website. Go, go check them out. Uh, these groups are the lifeblood of our church because when you know people, when you pray for people, when you care for people, then you can do the hard work of conflict and not be pulled apart. It's then that you experience the blessings of unity. But self obsession is the enemy of unity. So, what is the ultimate solution? And as we've already said, it's humility. Now, it's interesting, before the New Testament era, that word humility really had a, a negative connotation. It was often described as the mentality of a slave, somebody who was unfit, who was shabby, who was just mean. Or put another way, Paul did not consider it a virtue. Roman culture emphasized pride as a virtue, and so in these verses, what Paul is doing is turning this concept on its head. Now, what I find fascinating is that we're doing the same thing today, (laughs) right? That that humble brag, that's really about extolling the Roman virtue of pride. In many ways, our culture is starting to mirror that of ancient Rome in terms of things that we value, and that's, that's contributing to us breaking apart. Paul finishes the opening section with that shocking statement in verse 3. He says, Do nothing out of what? Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So these verses cut right against the grain of our self-obsessed culture. These verses, they call out that humble brag. What does he say? He says, It's not about us. The phrase selfish ambition can also be translated as empty glory, and what he's getting at here is is a self-centered lifestyle, a a self-centered lifestyle that craves praise and attention for our accomplishments. It focuses on the individual and not the Lord. It's the enemy of unity, and yet it's what we're rewarded for when we, we post things on the internet. Paul's calling us to reclaim the humility, reclaim humility for the glory of God, by valuing others above ourselves, looking to the interests of others, not solely our own. That, that is countercultural in his day and in our day. So ultimately, it is a heart issue. And I would just ask you, church, before we leave this point, uh, what is in your heart? Are you seeking empty glory for yourself? Or are you allowing the upside-down, countercultural concept of humility to grip your heart in a way that you love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you want the blessings of unity, humility must wash over your soul. All of us have different roles to play in the body of Christ. And if we, have to, uh, if we want to live together in unity, like a good song, we need to be doing these things. The gospel must transform your heart Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection must be the anthem of your soul. And that gets us to point number two, the song of unity, the song of unity. Now, Philippians chapter two, verses five to 11 are perhaps the most famous in the whole book, and they're fairly straightforward. It was was a hymn of the early church that they sang. And I think that's pretty significant because just consider for a moment what songs do, Right? Songs can, number one, songs can teach us. They can help us remember great truths of life and faith. And in fact, that's why we sing together each week in worship. Uh, the, uh, the, the songs teach us. The words from the songs teach us along with the message. Songs can also express our emotions and our beliefs. They shape our mindset. And so in verse 5 to 11, they're just, the rich in theology. They tell us exactly who Jesus was and what he accomplished. And so as a result, many people include this in their Christological studies. Now, for our purposes, what I want to invite you to ask is this. Why are these verses here in this letter at this point in particular? Why are they right here? Why did Paul choose to include this Christ-centered hymn at this point in the letter? The answer is in verse 5. Look at this. He says, "...in your relationships with one another." have the what? The same mindset as Christ Jesus. So he just spent these four verses talking about disunity in relationships. Now he tells us the solution is to what? It's to be like Jesus. And you see that phrase, the same mindset? It's the same word. I put it up there for you. Froneo, that was used earlier in that conviction section. He says, if you want to have unity, you have to have the same outlook as Jesus. Or a literal translation would be this, think this in you, which Christ thought in him. The same thoughts. And you need to get those thoughts of Jesus right into your heart. In other words, it needs to be a song that you sing. It needs to explode out of your heart every day. Why? Because a church filled with discord is pretty hard to listen to. It's like, it's like listening to a choir up there, and they're all singing flat in different keys. It's like, ugh. That's what he's saying when there's disunity in the church. Now, I want you to think for a moment about your favorite song. Right? If somebody heard you singing a song, what would it be? Now, some of you are saying, ah, I don't like to sing. I don't want to hear, have people hear me sing. I can't sing. Well, okay, but just picture that you're alone in the shower, or, or you're, you're, you're in your car, you're driving down the road, you're rolling down the windows and you're singing at the top of your lungs to whatever song you got, what would that song be? And then imagine somebody, either they're doing a documentary or, or, they're, or they're, you know, they're, they're just looking to catch you in something, they have a recording device near you when you're doing this, what would they hear? Wow. That's really funny. Masiri must have listened to me. <laughs> Imagine that. See, it's like they're listening to us. slush out. <laughs> now, I want to advise you to do an exercise, okay? Turn your phones off for that one, all right? You never know what's going to happen. I don't want to go off. All right. AI's getting us. <clears throat> what is your... What, what, is, what is the... Uh, if, when you're listening to music, ask yourself, does my song breed unity or disunity the songs you're listening to because so much of the popular music that's out there today is quite obsessed with the self some music is even violent other music will encourage immoral behavior and still other music can encourage you to contribute to societal breakdown my question is what does your music produce in you because sometimes i see people walking around and they got they got one ear, an earbud in one ear and they've got a, no earbuds in the other ear. And so they're listening to music on one side and they're trying to interact with the world on the other side. And what I'm wondering is if sometimes the music we're putting in the one ear is actually actually harming us as we interact with other people. So I could be listening to a song that's all about me as I interact with others. And what is that going to produce? Music is the language of the heart and songs can shape our outlook on life. That's why the church put theology to song, so we can sing it and get those deep truths down in our hearts. What is Psalm 96, one of my favorite psalms? What does it say? He says, sing to the Lord a what? A new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds amongst all people. He says, sing to the Lord a new song. Now, contextually, that does not mean that we should sing a different song every day. Rather, the psalmist is encouraging us to sing the same song about God's works daily, but in a fresh way. The gospel is exploding out of our hearts every single day. And friends, listen, we get up here every week, we work through the Bible, but the reality is we got one message, one message, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, Are you singing that? Are you preaching that to yourself? Am I preaching that to myself every day in a new and fresh way? And so with that in mind, let's read verses 6 to 8 and ask the Holy Spirit to allow it to shape our hearts. Verse 6, he says, of Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So what do you learn right there? You learn, number one, Jesus is God. These verses will tell us that he's fully God and fully human. Wrap your mind around that. It says Jesus was equal with God, but the NIV gets it right. He did not use that to his what? To his advantage. In other words, he did not selfishly use his power for his own gain. Instead, what did he do? Verse 7, it says, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, Tons of ink has been spilled over the centuries about this verse right here. Some versions will say Jesus emptied himself. And then you say, well, that doesn't make sense. Does that mean that he's not God? No. Again, I think the NIV gets it right here. He chose to make himself nothing, meaning he, he laid aside his divine privileges for a time for the purpose of taking on something else. And what was that? That was human nature. So he knows that he's God, but he knows what it's like to be human. Just pause and understand how incredible that is. Right? The God of the universe stepped into time and space and became a human being. That is unbelievable. Why? I love how the NLT translates verse 8. It says this. When he appeared in human form, he... There's that word. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Notice the word humbled, because Jesus was the model. He claimed, he reclaimed, he redefined humility in the first century. What did it look like? It looked like the God of the universe dying on a cross as a common criminal in obedience to the Father, not for his own gain, but for ours. And if that's the song of your heart, you understand how incredible, how life altering, how truly humbling it is. Because if the God of the universe can come and think of me before himself, how can can I not think of others? Now, is Jesus doing a humble brag here? (laughs) Just picture this tweet, at J. Christ, right? So honored to leave my place on high and come to earth. Thank you for this prestigious privilege, Father. No. No, he's saying, I will die for you with no recognition. I will die to save you. Bring your self-obsessed heart to me and let me show you how self-obsession dies at the foot of the cross. Verse 6 to 8 is a song about the death that brings unity. It's a song you got to get deep down in your heart. And when the whole church is singing these glorious truths, when they're going in our ears and getting lodged in our hearts, not just going in one ear and out the other, that's when transformation happens. That's when the church thrives. That's when the church is connected. These three verses produce a complete contrast to the heart attitude of verses one to four, where what was the warning? The warning was don't be a self taking person in verses one to four. He warns against selfish ambition and conceit. Those are attitudes that destroy, Paul says. By contrast, the message of 6 to 8 is this, become a self-giving person. Right? Become somebody who thinks of others as more valuable than yourself. And when you do that, you're going to be generous. And what happens when somebody is generous? Think about your words. Your words are gracious and encouraging. Your time. You sacrifice your time investing in others. Hospitality, the door to your home is open and there's a warm meal on the table waiting for somebody to come in. Money, we know our finances are not our own and we're willing to help. We're willing to give to those in need, to bless people. People who sing the song of unity in verses six to eight are generous because they have experienced forgiveness and mercy. Generous people are humble, gracious Joy-filled people because they know what it means to be saved by grace. You know, I once heard a preacher say that he could tell how deeply a person understood the gospel by how they sang the song Amazing Grace. He said, if I, somebody, I saw somebody out there belting out that hymn, they were moved to tears, there, there was emotion behind it, they were crying out to God. I knew they knew what those words meant and they had experienced it. Church, is the gospel the song of your heart? Is it flowing from your life in such a way that you are experiencing and and pursuing those blessings of unity? Because the gospel song is our battle cry. And it leads to the final section of this passage and that's about the mission of unity. The mission of unity. Now, the third part of our MBC vision is this. We want to be followers of Christ who are made to multiply. That is the mission. A unified church, a church that's firmly planted, that's growing together, is doing it for the mission. That's a church that multiplies. Friends, we are called to share the gospel. We're called to tell people about Jesus. But sadly, 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 when the church is not united on core elements the witness suffers. When Christians are fighting amongst themselves, when they're punching each other in the face with their words and their attitudes, then they're not standing strong against the world's messages and Satan's schemes. And that's when the enemy sneaks in the door because there's discord in our song. It's it's like, like, again, like I said, everybody's singing flat or off key. It's like, nobody wants a part of that. And Jesus knew this. Do you remember a key element of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17? What does Jesus pray for? He prays to the Father. He says, I will remain in the world no longer. But they, my followers, my disciples, and those who come later, they're still in the world. I'm coming to you, Father. Holy Father, what does he say? He says, protect them. By the power of what? By the power of your name, the name you gave to me so that they may be what? They may be one as we are one, that they would reflect the beauty of the Trinity, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, existing in community, in mutual love for one another. That my Father would, would reflect that, he says, protect them. And again, I don't think this was just for his disciples in that day. It's also for us, And Jesus prayed these words because he knew, he knew, because he was fully God, fully human. He knew the power of sinful self-obsession. He knew our proclivity to give into the cultural messages, to embrace the humble brag. The culture of self-obsession, it sneaks into our hearts, it plays on our flesh, its messages, its attitudes, and then one day it manifests itself and it's destructive. Why? Why? Because it keeps our hearts from bowing to King Jesus. And so Jesus prays for our protection. And how does he say we'll be protected? By the power of his name. The power of the name of Jesus while we're still here in the world. And that's how Paul finishes the hymn. Look at verse 9. He says, therefore, given all that Jesus just did, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the what? The name of above all other names. Now notice, as a result of Jesus' attitude and his action of humility, God does what? He elevates him to the place of highest honor. Literally, it's not just he was exalted, he was super exalted. And I want you to understand this, again, that it was completely against, completely against the cultural messages of Paul's day and our day. To be rewarded for humility, true humility, was unheard of. But God lifts him up. He gives him this name above all names. Why? Why? Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, everywhere, and every tongue, every mouth, declare, not just say, but declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what is the main purpose of God lifting up Jesus? it's worship we are meant to worship him as god and king how our knees bow in an act of submission to his authority and our tongues confess we confess allegiance and we sing in worship of our god that's an attitude of the heart and it's an act of the will so do you see now why paul includes this right here this whole song It makes total sense in the context of verses 1 to 11. He says, True unity in the church will never be achieved if we do not lay aside our self-obsessed lives and surrender to the lordship of Christ in everything. Self-obsession must die at the foot of the cross. Division in our world, it will continue until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and God the Father is glorified. That is the mission. Do you know how many people in this world, how many people here in central New Jersey are not giving Jesus the worship that he is due? The church must be united upon this mission. Our mission is to be used by God to bring hearts and souls under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what we were made for. To worship Jesus and to bring him glory. He's got to rule everything. Every sphere of life must come under his reign. And you know what? One day, it will. So why wait? So can I suggest just very simply that the reason we're not unified at home, at church, in our world, is because Jesus does not rule every single part of our heart. The glorious beauty of the name of Jesus has not captured us. Something else has. We will worship something. We are slave to whatever rules our hearts. So let me invite you to do an exercise. When you hear the name of Jesus, what emotion does it evoke? Is it joy? When you hear the name of Jesus, does it warm your heart and bring you satisfaction? Or is it fear? When you hear the name of Jesus, do you you just fear him and the judgment he brings? Is it anger? When you hear the name of Jesus, are you angry because he, he hasn't given you the life you wanted or think you deserve? Or is it apathy? When you hear the name of Jesus, you just don't care. You're apathetic. You're indifferent. Does the name of Jesus produce any of these emotions? And if it doesn't, like I just got to tell you wait for the trials of life. Because when life is seemingly good, you can afford to be apathetic. You don't need Jesus because you think, "I'm fine. I got it. I don't need you." But when the storms come, when the storms come, you can look to Jesus and choose joy or you can fall at his feet and call and you can fall at his feet and call him Lord or or you can live in fear of what's coming next. You can be angry at Jesus for what he's given you and become a bitter person. That you could choose to do that. And that answer reveals our heart attitude toward our Savior and the gospel He offers. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you that if your heart is not bowed to Jesus, there's some form of disunity in your life. And so my prayer today is that the Holy Spirit will touch your heart, that He'll work on my heart, and that He will open all of us up to deeper surrender. Everybody who's made in the image of God, we desire the blessings of unity. The world knows they need it. And I just wonder today, how are they going to get it if the church does not offer an expression of true unity? How will they get it if the church does not sing together in harmony? How will they hear the name of Jesus if we are not unified in the mission for the glory of God and the sake of the gospel? Because when that happens, everything else falls into place. And so as the worship team comes Back on stage, they're going to lead us in one, one beautiful final song, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. And I, and I think it's really appropriate we come to the table to, together today, because when you come to the table, we come to confess, we come to admit that we are, we are a group of humble braggers. <laughs> we love to complain, we love to boast, we love recognition. And so when we come to the table, we come to confess that so often our attitude Has contributed to the disunity in the world and in the church. I am a humble bragger. And as I look around and I and I witness the death of unity in our world, and I see the raging wars and the the rising divorce rates and the the trolls on the internet who are looking to tear everybody apart they disagree with, I'm forced to ask myself: where am I self-obsessed? And what fruit has that produced? And so i got to look at my marriage and say, has my complaining and my boasting caused disunity there? i got to look at my children and say, what am I teaching them through my heart's attitude? To look at the church and say, have I led from a place of of true humility? And I'd ask you to consider the same thing. What is the fruit of your self-obsession? Because self-obsession is the enemy of unity. But I hope you heard today there's good news. The foot of the cross, that's where self-obsession comes to die. And so let's bring it there today. Let's come under the protection of the beautiful name of Jesus and allow his sacrifice to reunite us. He's the only one who can resurrect unity in our world. You know, in another letter, the letter to the Ephesian church, Paul clearly writes... And succinctly writes about this truth. Ephesians 2 13 and 14, he calls us to the cross. He says, But now, you got, you, we were sinners, we were lost in our sins. He says, But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to Him by the blood of Christ. For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles, all people, into one in His own body on the cross what he did was he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus' sacrifice can bring peace and unity? Do you believe this is good news? And with all the disunity around us, you have to see that Christ has given us the power to end it. That one day, every knee will bow before him. Let's start today. Let's start with us My prayer for you and my prayer for me, Lord, help me, is this. Don't resist him. Choose joy as you come to the cross and you surrender and you sing about the beautiful name of Jesus forever. Amen.